We just sang it. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we continue a few weeks talking about God's Word, its role, and its power in our lives. And uh, just as we were singing, uh, show us Christ, through the preaching of the Word, uh, through the reading of His Word, through the study of His Word, the goal of Scripture is to show us Christ. And so we come to God's Word this morning in John chapter 5, verses 36 to 39, where Jesus sideways gives us that invitation that He gives elsewhere to come to Him, to come to Him and have life. Hear then the Word of God. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that my Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. You don't know him. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning to your word. But even as this passage invites us, we would come beyond the word to the living Christ that we indeed might have life in his name. Amen. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He rebukes them because they have not neglected his word, but they've mishandled his word. They've been misusing his word. They love his word. They're in his word. They read his word. But they misunderstand his word because they misuse his word. They've made the Bible an end in itself. They've turned morality into a set of rules. They've made religion into a set of formal traditions. And they've made the Bible into a source of religious life. They've made Jesus something outside and removed from their understanding of the Scripture. And so Jesus comes and he rebukes these Bible-loving, church-going people. Right? They love the Scripture and they love to go to temple. They love to be in church with God's people. But they're misusing the Scripture and they're missing the point because the ultimate purpose of the Bible, according to Jesus and according to itself in so many places as God speaks, is simply this. It is to lead the people of God to God himself. It is to lead God's people to Christ, to the living Savior, to Jesus. See, Jesus' indictment is simply that these are the scriptures that bear witness to me. They point to me. They talk about me. You should have come to me. The scriptures we said, as we looked at them last week in 2 Timothy, the scriptures are God-breathed. They're His Word. Right? They're the very words of God. They're profitable. They're profitable to give divine content to our faith and to our life, what we believe and how we live. They teach the truth and they reprove error. 
They correct crooked lives and they train us in righteousness. The word of God is powerful and it is true. But here's the thing that we must never lose sight of that they did. And it's simply this. It does not do all of this in a vacuum. Right? Like like information gathered from a textbook that you can regurgitate on an exam or like or like information you can garner out of a how-to manual so that you can make the thing work right. The Bible ultimately, finally, is a revelation of God Himself to a people, to us. This is what the Bible is. It's a self-revelation. It's God making Himself known, showing Himself speaking into our lives so that we will see Him and know Him and love Him, so that we will come to Him, worship Him. See, the purpose of the Scripture is not simply to give us orthodox brains, although if you study the Scripture and learn to know it, you will have an orthodox brain. But it's not just to give us an orthodox brain or a moral lifestyle or a good set of rules to live by. It is not here just to tell us about God It is actually meant to reveal God to us and to bring us into a living fellowship with the person and power of a God who is. So the true power of Scripture is then is to point beyond itself. The true power of Scripture is to put us in touch with the God of whom it speaks, the God who it reveals. The perennial danger in the church is that we are champions of Bible doctrine. And many of us are. We love the truth that we find here. Sometimes it's intoxicating, right? Sometimes we, we love how it, it is a cohesive understanding of life and who we are and how it works and how things were made. And it gives us this huge picture of a sovereign and powerful and good God and purpose and meaning into our lives. And we, we can be intoxicated with what we read here and what we understand here. And the danger for us is to become champions of Bible doctrine, of Bible morality, of Bible truth, but miss the beating heart behind the Scripture, the living God who speaks to miss His transforming power. The transforming power of Scripture is not that it's a magical book. And sometimes we, we get that way. We, we are very superstitious in some ways ourselves. I use up a Bible. I've horrified people by telling them I've used up many Bibles in my life. Meaning they get worn out. They start to come apart. Pages start to come out. And I throw them away. And I buy a new one. And they're like, you throw it away? It's God's word. It's, you can't do that. You can't. I put my coffee cup on it sometimes. No. You know, it's it's this. The Bible, and don't get me wrong, we, we, there is a, it, there, this is the Word of God. And there is a power to it, but the power of the Word is God. The God who lives, and the God who speaks, and the God who makes it all true in your life by the power of His Spirit that lives in you and dwells in you. The Spirit who inspired the Scripture and gives us the written Word makes that Word profitable in our lives by His presence. It brings us to Him. 
See, these guys are standing right in front of Jesus. In verse 36, it says, the testimony of Jesus is standing right in front of them. They are lovers of God's word. They are lovers of the church. They go to church like nobody else. They stand in front of them. Jesus says this, this is the testimony that I have. It's greater than that of John the Baptist. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, the Christ is standing right in front of you. And lovers of the Word ought to know that. Lovers of the Word ought not to miss that. Because what does he say next? These are the scriptures that speak of me. And if you can read these things, and you can study these things, and you can end up with a religion and a doctrine and a church and a moral lifestyle and laws and rules, and you can end up with all that stuff, but somehow miss me, you've mishandled, misunderstood, and misused the whole thing. The Christ is standing right in front of you. By my words and my works, they declare me the person to be the divine Messiah. This is pointing, he says, the word that you have in front of you is pointing beyond itself to me. And I'm here. He says in verse 37, the Father sent me. The Father who sent me himself is born witness about me. Right? His power, the manifestations of all that I have done in healing the sick and making the blind to see and the lame to walk, you've seen the manifestations of God's power. You know it's God's power. Nobody does these things. God himself has shown up in an extraordinary, awesome acts of miraculous healing and power. Shown himself to be my father and the one who sent me, to have authorized my ministry, empowered my ministry, blessed my ministry, testified to my identity. It's as clearly of God, but here's the verdict. Verse 38, you do not have the word abiding in you. You read the scripture, but the God of the Bible has not come home to roost in your souls. You don't know him. You do not believe the one who sent me. You search the scriptures. We'll back up, verse 30, 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. you. You study the word, but it hasn't come home. You do not believe the one whom he has sent. You have, not, you have not followed the scripture to where it is meant to lead you. You've made the scripture an end in itself. The word doesn't abide in you. You have the Bible, but you don't know God. You have the truth, but you don't know the God of truth. You have a lot of rules and laws that are true. They reflect God's character. They're, they're righteous, but you do not have the spirit of righteousness that humbles and gentles you. And so the Pharisees, these are guys that love the Jewish religion and the greatest irony of the world, and it is sometimes the greatest irony, and we have to see it in the church too, We have this tendency to read about the Pharisees and always think about those Pharisees and Sadducees, those guys, they were so messed up, I don't know. But I think all of this is written, my friends, for you and I. All of this is here so that we will see ourselves. All of this is here to speak into our lives that we don't become like them, where it becomes that thing that is a step removed from us. That we have this danger. These, the great irony is how much they love the Jewish religion. How some, sometimes we love Christianity. Right? And all the, all the content of it. 
The greatest irony is that they love the religion, but they've lost touch with the God of the Bible. They've lost touch. Is that possible? Is it possible to have Jesus right under your nose and still not live in a vital relationship with him? Is it possible to have all of his words, but for them not to abide in such a way that they are not just words, but they are the power of the word, and the power of the word is what? Is Christ himself, is God himself. See, Jesus acknowledges their diligence in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures. That's a good thing. You're very religious people. You're very studious people. You're very disciplined people, right? You know, and you, you, you do what you're supposed to do. You have your quiet time and you go to church and you study the scriptures and you even teach them. You're very diligent about this stuff. You're searching out the truth. You're searching out the law. You love the Bible, you love church, you love the community, you love teaching Sunday school, you love the choir, you advocate moral lifestyle, like they did all of that. And they thought they had found life. That's life. Going to church, enjoying the fellowship, hearing the Bible, affirming the moral lifestyle, right? Championing the truths. And I, and I, like, I like this thing. And we thought we have found life. But for these guys, as Jesus is pointing out to them, there's something hollow about it. There's something missing at the center. There's, a, there's an absence of, of grace and life and joy and power. There's a harshness to the religion. There's a harsh edge to their religion as they interact with folks. There's a, a sense of moral superiority to their religion. An emphasis on rules and traditions that helps them to emphasize criticism and being judgmental of everyone else. There's an outward appearance of godliness because they've focused on external traditions and and doing it right and getting it the the best way that it's supposed to be. You're supposed to do it this way. There are many of us who are very concerned about the the best way, the, the, the external shape of it and the intellectual agreement to it. But when it leads to a sense of moral superiority or judgment or criticism or an edge of harshness or a lack of grace, a lack of gentleness and kindness, there is something missing at the middle of it. It is the ever-present danger for the church in every age to have a commitment to Christianity, to have a commitment to church, to have a commitment to biblical doctrine and to biblical morality but somehow to lack a vital connection to the gentle, humble, gracious Savior who makes it all live and powerful. He spoke of that. Paul spoke and he warned the church about that. In 2 Timothy 3.5, it's in your bulletin under the second point. When Paul is writing to Timothy and warning him as a pastor about how it's going to be to pastor churches, he says sometimes you're going to be pastor churches, and he says you've got to look out. There are going to be some folks, some people who go to church uh, who have an appearance of godliness because they love Christianity. They love the idea of it. They love the moral lifestyle against the world. They love doctrine. They love getting it right. They have this outward form of godliness, but they deny its true power. What is the true power 
The true power, he says, is the power of a true godliness. To not just have the appearance of all those things. To love all those things externally and sometimes with a harsh edge to them. But to have an inward growing fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. That is the heartbeat of Scripture. To know him. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus in his, in his powerful indictment on the Sermon of the Mount about those who will come to him on that day that didn't we cast out demons and prophesy and do all this? Didn't we have this amazing life, this you know, religious life of stuff that we were engaged in and doing in Jesus' most powerful, ironic statement of, but I never knew you. Right, That heartbeat of the religion, which is Jesus. He says, you never came to me. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. This Christian life, all the stuff and the rules and the traditions that it gives you. He says, but these are those that bear witness about me. You refuse to come, to come to me, to the person, to the Savior, to the God, to the one who lives and reigns and is raised. The one who who makes it all work and powerful and in the right way because the one who inspired this religion comes to dwell in the souls of his people. Jesus gentles us. He says, come to me all who are wearied or laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. Learn from me because I am humble and I am gentle of heart. Right? The religion of Jesus, when, it, when we do actually come to him, humbles and gentles us. Because the truth puffs up. There's an awful lot of Christianity that's puffed up with the truth, with right doctrine and orthodoxy. And the truth puffs up and he says, but come to me and I will humble you and I will gentle you. And the truth is still true and it's still living and powerful, but the one who holds it will hold it differently, will hold it graciously, will hold it full of a gospel of life and hope and grace and mercy. They will hold it in such a way that it brings life and health and peace. The heart of Christianity is not a Bible, it's not a church, it's not a moral code. Those are all important, don't get me wrong, we need all those things. But understand this, you can have all those things and not have Christ. The Pharisees did. They had church, they had the doctrine, they had the truth, they had the Bible, they had Sunday school, they had all of those things, but they, ultimately Jesus says, you don't know God. The God of the Bible, your soul doesn't worship Him. Your soul doesn't... Go to him, doesn't bow the knee to him. Your soul doesn't feast on him and know him and desire to serve him. Your soul is full, you're full of yourself. You're not full of him and his spirit. See, the churchianity of the Pharisees is an ever-present danger for the church that we, we create church people rather than Jesus people. See, the content of Jesus' rebuke is that you're lovers of my word but you've not been softened by my grace and my presence. The word of God points beyond itself. It directs us to the person of Jesus. Jesus calls us to bow the knee and to put our faith in him. And that's the invitation, right? And every person that hears the call of Jesus must start there. It is that come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give rest to your souls. I'll speak mercy. I'll speak forgiveness and grace. And every one of us starts there. That's that coming that everyone must, well, must do. If you've never done it before, now is a good time. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. 
the living Savior, and I will give rest for your souls. I'm gentle, and I'm humble, and I will save you, and I will change you. And we all start there. But here's the problem. That first encounter must become a way of life. That first encounter must be the the first of a quadrillion trips into his presence and into his grace. It must be the beginning of a relationship. You know, it must be the beating a pathway to his, to his door that's a daily occurrence. You know, when my kids were little, and we, we've got this little piece of woods. It's, it's the one thing about my house that I've, I've, where we have lived. We have a little corner house, and there's about, I don't know, 50 yards of woods. And it stands alone. Behind it's a field and a house, and it's in the middle of this. But this one house and this little, we got like 50 feet of woods. And my son growing up, my children growing up, that little piece of woods was like, I don't know when you're anywhere from 5 to 12, is, is a whole world. And he would go and spend so much time down there, and, and he would be the path down. There was a little f- place where we would make fires down there as a family and go sit around. There, we built a treehouse right there, but he would take his you know, stuff, and he would go into the woods for hours, that little piece of woods. But he did. There, between two trees from our back of the house, there was a little... Between two trees, uh, so many trips down to that fort and down to that thing. He didn't, you know, we didn't go out and make it or do anything. He just beat a path. He just beat a path that when you looked, you could see (laughs) it led right to that little corner of the world uh, where he found fun and joy. And and there's there's this picture in Scripture, I think, that is this beginning, this coming to Jesus when he said, you, you, you refuse to come to me. He's not talking about just once. And with the Pharisees, it's probably even that first once. But I think the word to us is that coming once is, is that first walk through a field where you, you've, you've knocked down some of the grass, but, but that come to me is to beat a path to my presence. And so you see that path, it becomes a default path. In all your moments of life, come to me to have life. Come to me to have life. Come to me again. Come this morning. Come this morning. Come every morning. Come every, you know, come in those moments. Come in those things to come to me to find life. Every child is born and we feed him milk and we, we, we nourish the child. And First Peter, this is under your third point, First Peter 2, it says, like newborn infants long for this spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. And so there is that coming, that first giving of the child milk, but all it does is satisfy his craving, nourish his body, and give him life for a minute. And then he's got to come back, and he's got to come back, and he's got to come back, and like a newborn infant crave. And he says, my friends, this is us, like newborn infants crave to beat a path to this nourishment that we might grow in it. We might deepen in it and find strength and life in it and a fullness of spirit in it when we beat this pathway into his presence to grow up into our salvation. At some point, Paul writes there in your bulletin under the 30s, 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. Even now, you're not ready for it. You're not growing into spiritual maturity. You're not making movement. It's not nourishing and bringing life the way that it should. In other words, you're handling the word, but it's not bringing life, growth, change. And so in Hebrews, he says it again, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled 
in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. And I think that is the key to it. He says, we are unskilled in the word of righteousness. There's one thing to read the word of righteousness, to know and agree with the word of righteousness, to even preach the word of righteousness, to demand it of other people, and to actually be skilled in our own souls in that word. In other words, to be transformed into its image, to be, to be becoming like Christ, full of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and gentle and humble of heart, giving and serving. In so many ways, we become skilled, changed, molded into its image. The Pharisees handled the word and they were actually hardened by it. They became worse because it didn't change them. And we become adept at handling a word that doesn't change us. is a very dangerous thing. Which is then the last point. Jesus is saying, come to me. How does the word change us? Not by reading it. Not by listening to it being preached. However good the preaching may or may not be. If it doesn't lead you to go to Jesus, to go to Christ, for Him to do in you what only He can do. Whatever the Word said, whatever you agreed with, however much you enjoyed it or liked it, we must go to Jesus for it to have the power in our souls that it is meant to have. The Bible is not a manual. And get me in this, the the, the idea that the Bible is a manual, and I've heard this before, that, you know, people will say the Bible is is the owner's manual, right? God created us, and he gave us an owner's manual. And I would say this, half true, half true, because it's it's full of truth, because it's full of rules and commands and, and guidelines for righteous living. Um, And so in some sense, it is a manual. But if we think that that in giving us the manual, we are are ready to go, we can pull this off. That he's given us everything that we need. You know, giving us the manual is only part of it. Every time we open the manual, God's word, every syllable of it is God's word. But it is meant to be his voice that leads us to him, to be speaking to him, responding to him, pleading with him, asking from him. And so it's a manual, but it's not a manual like you get it, you read it, and you can make the computer work. It doesn't work like that. That's how we burn out. That's how we get lost. You know, you feel like it's not working. You feel like you're not able to pull it off. You feel like, well, there's truth in that. Look at your last point. John Owen says this, it will ruin your souls. If you read the scriptures, how the saints of God express their experience and faith and life and delight in God and how they constantly meditate on him. And we grant that it was so with them and that it was good for them as good and holy men, but it's not necessarily necessary that it should be so with us. That these things were not written in the scripture to show us what they were, but they were written in the scripture to show us what we ought to be. Let me just touch on that. He says it will ruin your souls if you read the Scripture and how it was and you gather that truth. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were without fear. They were filled with confidence. They were men of prayer. You know, they loved and worshipped the Lord. 
when they're tempted, you know, when they, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, that's great for them. He says, it will ruin your souls if you read it and it remains a story about somebody else. And it doesn't become the craving and passion of your soul. To read about what holy men and women of God experienced in their God, and it doesn't become a hunger in your soul to experience it. It doesn't become the mode of your prayer to say, God, just as Jesus said, it will become in you a spring of living water. And if it doesn't become then a desire, I want that spring in my soul. Jesus, I want to drink and never thirst again. Jesus, come near and fill me with your spirit and let it spring up so that it overflows in life into my life. You see how you can read the word and gather? I'll never forget, I was meeting with a student. I would meet with him. We would read the Bible and talk about it. And we read that passage. And he goes, I'm really familiar with this story. I'm really familiar with this passage. Let's study something else. And I remember just... That's the wrong response to the scripture. Not not let's pray so that would happen in my soul. Not let's pray so I will become that man so full of the spirit that it overflows in life. Let's, Let's embrace this. Let's get on our knees with Jesus now and seek this to be true. It's no, I already know that story. And that's how we hit the Bible, isn't it? We read it. I know that. That's so familiar. And we just move. If it stays out there, it will ruin our souls if we read it as somebody else's experience and not as the call of Jesus to come to him and find life. Our small group, we're reading in Colossians. It's there in your last point under the bulletin. Um, We proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this, I toil and I struggle with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. And I'm saying if we read that, okay, that's great. That's interesting. Paul the Apostle, you know, his goal is to present everyone perfect in Christ. And he struggles hard. He labors. He's a hard worker. Paul, he's a good man that way. And it sounds like God helps him. That's a great story. It's a great testimony, Paul. Thanks for sharing it. Now, my friends, every single one of these things is written for us. It is a word to your soul from your Savior calling you to himself to experience the life that is intended in all of these things. And so we come to him. We come to him. When our lives are weak, you know, we wonder where it is. I don't know about you. We read the Bible and we just wonder at all the stuff God did in these people's lives. We wonder at all the stuff Paul writes about. It's so lofty. It's so cool. You know, it's so, that's awesome. But Jesus is saying it should awaken your soul to hunger. It should awaken your soul to desire something more, something something that I'm not fully experiencing, something that is his intention in the fullness of life that is to be ours in Christ. My friends, let us not handle the word of God at a distance. It will ruin our souls if we read it as a word out there. And it doesn't come, he says, if, my wor- if, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, if it comes into you creating hunger and thirst and a reality and you abide in me, and you see how those two things are not separable. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, we're good with the word abiding because we can handle it. 
And we do handle it. He says, and if you abide in me, things are going to change. Things are going to happen. Here is the life that he invites us to. It's not here. But the Bible will point us, lead us, bring us, speak into our lives that Christ may have his way with us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we love your church and we love Christianity and we love the community and we love your word and we love the doctrine and the truth and we love the moral lifestyle. We love all these things, but God save us from having any of them apart from the presence and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Come near, Lord Jesus, and be the beating heart of our religion. Be the beating heart of our soul. Awaken us to hunger and desire. Lead us to Yourself that we might find life abundantly. In Your name we ask and pray. Amen.